and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about silhouettes. How much information can you gather from a simple outline of a character? What can silhouettes teach us about game design? Did Alfred Hitchcock know something we don't? To help me answer these questions and many more is a man who concludes every episode by riding off into the sunset, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? Good evening. That's it. Is this that's your Alfred Hitchcock? Yeah, that, that was, that's all I had. <laughs> you were just going to drop it and hope that I ran with it or something? Well, I have to kind of, you know, I have to take baby steps back into these sketches since you've been, you know, you've been kind of taking it over them for me. So um, that's what I got today. Start Starting slow, I see. Yeah. Well, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jared, we have a uh, an excellent topic to talk about today, something I've actually been really excited to discuss. And fortunately, our our guest proposed it. So I was I was real excited. Joining us today is a man who's seen more chicken dinners than an all you can eat buffet. He's the CEO of Foo VR and the creator behind the Foo Show. Please welcome Will Smith. Welcome to the show, man. How hey, you doing? Hey, Stephen, uh, Jared. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is this is uh, I'm excited to talk about silhouettes, too. I, I've been thinking about them a lot uh, in terms of PUBG and from TF2, like all of my multiplayer gaming experiences kind of revolve around silhouettes, it turns out. So it's it's good to be here. Yeah, it's a uh, it's an interesting topic because it's something I've heard kind of like there's been a lot of buzz about it lately, but I haven't really I, I don't know. I haven't found an opportunity to really work it into our show. So when you proposed it, when I heard that you were wanting to talk about it, I was I was hella excited. <laughs> well, you know, as a full disclosure, I played almost a thousand hours of PUBG in the last nine months or a year or so. And like it is it's a really integral part of that game in a completely different way than any of the other stuff that we, we're going to talk about here, I think, but, but we can get to that stuff later. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things. It's silhouettes. Are one of those game design elements that I looked at when valve was starting to talk about TF2 and, and how they differentiate all those characters and make them readable for players. And I was like, Oh, right. That makes perfect sense. And it's something I had literally never considered as a person who plays thousands of hours of games and had never really tried to make anything at that point. So Exactly, exactly. And that's kind of been my experience with it, too. But well, let's, uh, let's, let's go back to the beginning for uh, people who might not be as familiar with you. Where, where did you get your start in, I guess, the, the video game industry? Like, do you? <laughs> are we are we part of the video game industry? Um, well, let's see. We can go all the way back to the origin if you want. But uh, let's do it. The I started writing for Ars Technica in 1998. Uh, by doing video card reviews and sound card reviews and an occasional game review. Um, ended up moving to Maximum PC, uh, had worked IT and all sorts of stuff like that. So I had I had a, like I had been building computers for people and playing games and playing games on computers that probably shouldn't run those games back when that was a hard thing to do. Um, in the in the I was a, I was I was a Mac child, oh. so I know all about running games on computers that weren't supposed oh, to right. run games. Oh yeah, you got your Performa <laughs> there running running something beside Maelstrom, and and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, it was it was a good time. I learned a lot, um, and it put me in a good position to write about technology and and how to get more out of your computers when you know at a time when only kind of nerds had computers, right? Um, so I did that for a long time, and then in 2010 I got an opportunity to launch Tested, uh, which is a site that uh, is now. Uh, with Norman Chan at the time, uh, it was part of the Whiskey Media Network, which is you may know from Giant Bomb and Comic Vine and a bunch of other sites that I think mostly don't exist anymore. Um, and uh, we wanted to make a tech site that was uh, more about celebrating things that are awesome in technology than you know bitching, at, nitpicking about the the things that you know are, are lame or whatever. And at the same time, do 
kind of hard hitting reviews. We did that for a while um, and had pretty good success with it. Like we started doing videos and more podcasts and, and had a good time and made something that, that I think we both thought was pretty cool and, and very reflective of of the things that uh, Norman Chan and I were both very interested in at the time. Now, Tested, it certainly seemed like kind of went through evolutions, iterations over time. It certainly seemed like it became a platform for a lot of different projects, podcasts, videos, blogs. Was that always your intention when you when you had helped create it or or what was the original vision and then how did it change over time in your eyes? Um, I, I mean, the original vision was to make the, the, the thing that I loved about whiskey when we were when when I was thinking about leaving Maximum PC, the reason I was drawn to the whiskey people is that they were really they were interested in building both content first, like finding finding making things that are interesting, not necessarily saleable, which turns out was maybe a bad thing for the long-term health of the business, but whatever. Um, and, and, you know, they, they wanted people who were interesting people to come in and host those shows. They knew from bringing Jeff Gersman and Ryan Davis and Brad Schumacher and Vinny Caravelle and those guys in at Giant Bomb, that if you put people who are interesting and put, give them a platform and, and let them build something that kind of merges editorial content and video and then user-generated content, interesting things happen. Um, so, I mean, tested, like the goal was, we're tech guys, so we made a tech site, but the goal was to make something that wasn't, you know, like Gizmodo or Engadget at the time. We wanted to make something that was uh, a little more of a human way to cover technology. And I think we did a really good job of that. And that continued uh, when Jamie and Adam got involved in 2012. Now, how, how did they get involved? Was that was that something where they reached out to you or, or did you reach out to them or, or how did that come about well uh we had a funding problem at whiskey and and uh, that they needed to sell bits and pieces of the company off so uh a company in los angeles uh called whale rock industries had a production relationship with jamie and adam that meant they were supposed to make a website and they wanted to buy the technology platform that we had built for giant bomb and and all that stuff and uh when they were doing that sale, they looked at Tested and were like, hey, this is actually, this is kind of like what Mythbusters does, but for phones. Maybe we should introduce these guys. So uh, Norm and I went over to Jamie's office at M5 and sat down with him and Adam and their lawyer and some other folks one day and kind of just realized that that we like we had very similar worldviews and very similar ideas about how you should cover technology and we'd already been doing things like going to maker fair and finding people who make amazing things in the bay area getting involved with jamie and adam just gave us a bigger budget to go and find more people that had made cooler stuff in in different parts of the world and how was it working with them they seem like they seem like cool guys on TV, but do you have any do you have any dirt you could spill? No, um, sadly, uh, Jamie is every bit as grumpy as he seems on TV, and uh, Adam is the the thing that surprised me about Adam is he was much more internet savvy than I kind of was expecting a TV guy to be. Like he had spent a lot of time on some of the early web social communities like Metafilter and and places like that, and and Fark, and like he he was very much more internety than I expected. Um, so yeah, no, they're, they're, they're the characters, they don't, the characters that they play are them. Maybe they're a little tiny bit exaggerated, but not really. There's no, I never once had a, had a coffee thrown in my face and no one ever told me, uh, that I was never going to work in this business again. So <laughs> dang, well, there goes our exclusive. Sorry guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, so 
working on tested what was your what was your favorite part of of working with that project oh did you accomplish everything you set out to accomplish um well you never set out you never accomplish everything you set out to accomplish right um I, I wanted us to be the only website remaining on the internet, you know, to take over Google and and destroy Microsoft and Apple and the whole thing, and just be the 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 only website that anybody ever needs for anything. And we didn't quite get there, but uh, but yeah, no, I I feel like um, the the best stories were always the ones where we went out and found people who made cool stuff, right, and and showcased somebody who had just an overwhelming passion for whatever it is they were creating. Um, we you know, we went we went. And I stood on top of a running nuclear reactor and looked down and saw Chernikov radiation between my feet. Right, that's a that is a that is a cool thing that most people don't get to do. I went to Johnson Space Center and met the people who make food for the for the space station and learned how all that stuff works and got to eat a lot of it. Uh, and then and then brought some of my favorite chefs in the world there and and uh, you know with them they watched them while they kind of remix the food that's available on orbit and and into recipes that the astronauts could try. I literally sat in a cafe with David Chang and Tracy Desjardins and typed up recipes that they were they had they had invented based on the food that's available on the space station. Emailed them to the space station to Christopher Hatfield who was on orbit at the time and and then got notes back from him about what was going to work and what wasn't going to work in in microgravity. And like that's like I sent emails to space, man. That's that's incredible. That's a, yeah. That's pretty rad. So you you basically had the coolest job. Got I, it. <laughs> I, I had a very cool job for for a long. I've had a lot of cool jobs, but that was that was a very very cool job. And then you quit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> People asked a lot about that a lot. I when I saw VR in twenty thirteen twenty fourteen, and with the initial Rift prototypes, I thought, oh, this is gonna be really cool for games. Like you can sit in a virtual cockpit and you can, you know, fly around and do all sorts of cool stuff. That's gonna be really neat. And then I saw the Vive in the spring of twenty fifteen. There's a video on tested that you can go look at, and you can see norm and i trying to explain why we're excited about this and and just having hands and being able to walk around more having hands but also being able to walk around a room it was really really apparent to me that this was a whole new interface for computing and that that's really important that was going to be really important and i i had some ideas and i i was lucky enough to have the ability to raise a little bit of money and put together a small team and and Foo was born and we've been making weird shows with VR ever since. So yeah, so I guess explain to our listeners what the the Foo show is that you've been working on. So the Foo show is a test case for a virtual reality native content platform program, right? Uh, a thing that you can use to uh to record and watch uh, TV, TV like shows in virtual reality uh, in a headset or outside of it. And, you know, we use the, the Fusho is the, is the case study. It was kind of our guinea pig. Um, but really what we're doing more than anything these days is doing 2d animation in uh, at a kind of completely different cost basis and timeline than is capable with traditional or even uh, computer assisted 2D animation. So like I can put somebody in a Vive, put them in a virtual studio, set up some virtual cameras and we can do a live television program, a live animated television program, which we did on Adult Swim all last fall, um, where, where, we, where we do a sports call-in show with Carl from Aqua Teen Hunger Force. And he answers questions about the football games that week and, and talks to ESPN hosts and all sorts of other people. Uh, about what is going to happen in the world of the NFL that week. Right on. And and for anyone that hasn't had an opportunity to to check it out, I highly encourage everyone to go take a look at the uh, the work that they're doing on Fusho because it, it seems really cool as as 
uh, Jared and I are both big fans of VR, although typically don't get the opportunities to engage with VR as much as at least personally I would like to. But uh, it, it's really exciting, the the stuff that you guys are doing. I mean, the, the thing that we did with the Foo Show, the Foo Show is a show about games, and it basically lets me go in and talk to people who make things that are intangible that live only in software like video games or or you know science projects in a lot of cases and we can um we can like experience these in normally intangible environments and places and and technologies using vr as if they're real places so i can stand it inside uh the firewatch watchtower or a, a warhammer scene a total war warhammer scene and i can look at the miniatures from total war warhammers if they were human scale or even bigger um or we can stand between the lipid layers of an e coli cell with a scientist who makes nanomachines out of dna and you can explain to me how it works and and show me and point to the things that normally are you know nanometers across I think the yeah. first thing that I saw was that Firewatch Tower Tour because I was a huge fan of that game. And when I watched you guys walk around that space, I was like, holy crap. Yes, this is like this is the potential of VR, like cool out of the box stuff like this. Uh, and that, that's what really got me excited about VR. And I think you in, in general and your work with it has really kept me optimistic about the future of it as we kind of are still trying to figure things out. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I really appreciate that kind of stuff. Oh. I'm glad to hear it. As you're working in VR, are you are you running into challenges like having to s like still sell people on the idea of VR, or do most people seem to latch on pretty quickly to to what it is you're doing and what VR is trying to do? Well, um, so for the Foo Show, like the market for a show about the ins and outs of creating video games in VR is a little bit of a small market for for you know a small subset of the already small people who own eight hundred dollar now six hundred dollar VR headsets market. Um so you know it's that's not a great business there, I'll be perfectly honest, but it's fun. We we use it as a platform to experiment and learn new stuff. Um the the animation people are surprisingly open to it. Like when I when I roll into a studio and I'm like, hey look, instead of sending Instead of, you know, either mocapping actors or more likely just hand drawing or, or hand animating with computers, your your characters, you know, you could do this other thing instead where we set up a soundstage, we put people in headsets and we shoot it like a normal TV show. And instead of having to spend, you know, 18 months animating your characters in South Korea or Malaysia, you can just have a live thing that you edit like, a, like the Tonight Show uh, and send that out, you know, the day after it's shot or even live in some cases. People get really excited about that. So, so like as a as a tool for content creation, I think VR is much is very very interesting. I think I think we're, you know, we we kind of the people who are serious, not the analysts who always tend to be a little Pollyannish about new hardware. Um, like we all expect, I expected there to be a trough of despair with VR, where the headsets came out, they didn't immediately sell twenty million units because like no sane person would think there were going to be twenty million VR headsets that weren't Google Cardboard out in twenty fifteen. Um, and, and we're kind of getting through that part now into the part where there's a sizable market there and, and there's interesting people making interesting software. And, uh, you know, really, if you went and called valve and got a vive dev kit in, in March of 2015, when they showed the, the vive the first time, you're just now looking at three years on a dev cycle, which, you know, assuming you had six or eight months to get funding and put together your team or shift your team off of another project. Like we're 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 really just now into the 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 kind of sweet spot for, you know, big AAA games uh, or even mid-sized indie games like Firewatch. You know, that was a two and a half year game. 
So the good stuff is still coming. Like people, people look at that first year and are like, oh man, VR sucks. All that was out were all these tech demos and like a handful of games that Oculus paid for. And, and we're already seeing the falsity of that in 2017 already kind of was, was laid bare, right? There were a lot of awesome VR games in 2017. And my worry as someone who is like really hopeful for the future of VR, but hasn't been able to take the plunge because of the, the cost barrier, Mm -hmm. my fear was that it was going to fizzle before I got a chance to like really um, get to experience a lot of what's available out there. So it's, it's promising to hear that from your perspective, you don't think it's, you don't think it's going anywhere. That makes me hopeful that when it does sort of hit that price point where I can jump in and fully embrace it, that there'll be, there'll be plenty for me to do and plenty still going on in that space. So that's cool to hear. Yeah. I mean, I think we're going to see, I mean, Oculus has done a really good job of pumping content, spending money to pump content into the market, at least for people who own riffs. Um, controversial. I know that's contra- controversial, but like you need to support the developers. And anyway, people got to make money. They got to eat. Um, mm-hmm. the, the headset prices are going to come down in the next 12 months, even more. I mean, we're already looking at what, 400 bucks or something for a Rift now or 600 for a Vive. And, and those prices are going to continue to come down. We're going to see the mobile hardware come online and the standalone hardware that Oculus has announced it at uh, Oculus Connect last year looks really promising from a, from a hey, I don't want to have a $1,500 PC hooked up to this $600 headset perspective. So, well, yeah. I mean, we'll see. Before we move on to talking about silhouettes in games, I just had one last question, which is what would be like your, your dream game to, to get to explore in the, uh, in the Foo show or like your dream developer to talk to about their game on the show? I, I would love to talk to the folks behind PUBG, whether it's Brendan or, you know, one of the, one of the other developers who's works on the individual encounters or something like that, the, that like, I haven't had a game that I've been so gripped by the design that I've spent this much time in, in a decade. And, and it's just, it's, it's like each of those, like if you look at them, I don't know how much time you guys have spent playing PUBG, but if you look at each of those like little clusters of houses, like the sight lines, the windows that have bars on them, the windows that don't have bars on them, the the orientation of the of the same essentially stock assets in a lot of cases, especially for the first map, is all set up to to make approaching and defending the right balance of fair and unfair, depending on where the situation, where the map, where they're placed on the map, how the surrounding terrain works. Like there's there's a ton that has gone into that game and they did most of that first map with like stuff that they bought essentially you know on the open market like already created assets in in some cases so it's it's very cool how do you kick that show off do you jump out of the airplane oh no i think uh no we, we don't we never move the camera in vr for people if they don't want it uh so i think we would start off as probably like mile and a half high giants standing in uh, right around the school on a rangel and uh, then we would shrink down to different scales and, and uh, where we can kind of get a good eye of the terrain and, and uh, everything around it uh, to kind of, you know, show show why it's cool. Just try not to get mowed down by Grimm's. Look, I have been killed by Grimm's. Uh, it was <laughs> that's I, like that's a badge of honor right I, there. That's actually pretty dope. <laughs> I somebody in my, I was streaming and somebody in my chat was like, hey, man, you just got killed by Grimm's. I was like get out yeah it was it was uh, yeah never forget so uh yeah it's it's uh it's, it's being killed by grim's maybe a little overrated i don't know i i would have i would have much rather killed him in the end result but you know we'll we'll see maybe next time yeah, there's probably more people in your camp than the camp of people who have taken him down almost certainly i would say that is 100 percent true he doesn't really play that much anymore i was a little bummed i used to enjoy watching him play but but uh anyway 
So um, when you proposed the the topic of silhouettes, you had said that your PUBG was sort of your inspiration for for broaching this topic. So what I guess what was it specifically about PUBG that made you excited about silhouettes? Well, so you know you're t- you're talking about a game with a hundred people. Um, at least on the PC version, the Xbox version is a little bit different. But on the PC version, most of the combat takes place at a range where the people are just a handful of pixels high, even if you're playing at a, at a really high resolution. So silhouettes are really, really hyper important. And one of the things I don't, this is one of the questions I want to ask Brendan. Like, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but the LODs, so the level of detail, uh, usually when you're making a game like this, you you make the assets at different le- different levels of detail. So you can throw a lower poly, lower resolution one further off in the distance where it doesn't matter and you don't have to show the the best version of that of that asset. So for example, there's shrubs all over the map in 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 both of the maps in PUBG. And the level of the the like the second and third LODs of those shrubs look just like players. So you know you're scanning the horizon, you're looking for a guy out in the distance. And you see one of these shrubs and you're like, oh man, is that a person? Let me gonna zoom in real quick. Oh no, it's just a shrub. Move along, scan. Here's the next one. Is this a person? Is this a shrub? And they do that throughout the game. Like the the trees, the trees on Arangel, the the first the Russian map, have these stumps that stick out of the side of the tree that look just like a guy, you know, poking his leaning his head out the side to to snipe you. And you like it's it has to be a conscious design. There's no way it's not a conscious design. But nobody's ever asked them that I'm aware of, so I, I want to. <laughs> I love, I love. It sounds like a, like a Vietnam vet, like the trees, man. They're in the trees. <laughs> they're in the bushes. <laughs> but I mean, they are. They're like the best place to hide in first person is in a bush because you can see everywhere around you. It's yeah. Anyway, it's 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 uh, it, it makes you a little paranoid. It's funny playing that game so much. I told I was in a lift the other day. I was like, yeah, just drop me off on the south side of the parking lot at this place. He was like. Dude, how do you know which side is the south side of the parking lot? I was like, well, I Just, I can't explain it. But <laughs> yeah, drop me out, drop drop me off on the side of the building with the most bushes. Yeah, exactly. Dude, what? <laughs> That's a weird instruction to give me while I'm driving you around. Leave me by right. the burned out car between the dumpsters. <laughs> That's perfect. Well, cool. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely get into a lot more of that later in the show. Uh, but typically, we kind of start out talking a little bit about the the history of where these topics come from. So, Jared, I'll throw it to you. Uh, what, where did this all start when we're talking about silhouettes in games? Well, I mean, there's the game that is the game-breaking feature favorite. We talk about it a lot because it's one of the earliest games, but Space War fits this discussion really well. It was probably one of the earliest games to try to represent a, a real-life object, you know, being a spaceship or an airplane. And being that the game basically has, you know, like, I don't even know, it wasn't polygons, but whatever they, the, the pixels that they made that out of, they had no choice other than to make it more of a, a silhouette of, of the thing that it's representing. Was Space War vector-based? Like, was that a, a, a vector screen? I don't know exactly. I don't, I don't know if they... It may have been, because it may have been run on, like, an oscilloscope screen or something really, really silly. Yeah, like, I played it on a main machine, and it's rendered weird on a on a LCD or an LED screen, and I think that um, it was probably something like that. So the... I, I've seen pictures of it, and I've seen the game running. So it was originally made for the the DEC PDP one mainframe computer, and it's got like a I think it's got like a circular green screen, which to me like kind of screams vector. But I I guess I've never actually looked into whether it is or not, and and how many times we've brought it up on this show. Yeah, and it's not really just unique to Space War. Like obviously, a lot of early games had to communicate information at a very low resolution. So instead of 
being able to go into detail. Most games, they tried to give you the idea of the object instead of the details of the object. So, for example, you know, like I said, the triangle represents this, the spaceship in Space War or a semicircle represented the face and mouth of Pac-Man, whatever that's supposed to be. So according to Wikipedia, the PDP-1 display was a Type 30 precision CRT uh, capable of addressing 1,224, uh, th- sorry, 1,024 by 1,024 addressable locations at 20 kilohertz. So um, there we go. Yeah, I don't think that I think that means pixels, not vectors, but I could be wrong. I'm sure it yeah, certainly, you guys certainly sounds like it. Yeah. Wow. If, if only if, if only Google had existed when we started this show, <laughs> <laughs> I could have looked at any of this. I, I was I never never it never even occurred to me. Think I've I've seen one of, I've seen that actually running before at the Computer History Museum at one of their demo nights. And I, di- I didn't get to play, but it's it's kind of amazing to see that see like ancient hardware running the first video game. And uh, I, yeah. This game blows my mind because every time we bring it up and I, I kind of redo my research a little bit on it, I'm always blown away by the year that it came out, 1962, because you talk about like when a lot of the the major games had come out like Pong or even like Computer Space, which was based on Space War. Mm-hmm. Um, these were games that were coming out, you know, almost 10 years later. And between Space War and those games, there wasn't a whole lot. It was it really was like the earliest, earliest of the video game so it's it's it, by by quite a few years so it's, it's really cool to i don't know i guess rediscover that every time i i do a little research on it but, but i mean in this game there are two like it, it, the things that will hold true in the other games we're going to talk about apply here too right like you have two characters you have the needle ship and the the kind of chubbier ship i can't remember what that i think they called. called it a, i think they called it a wedge it was the wedge and the needle yeah and and like they are instantly readable right so you can tell you know which character is you even if you're just glancing at the screen for a second or you're glancing at your opponent, you're back to you, your your opponent, you're back to you. It's very difficult to get lost. And that's, that's one of the key things that's interesting about silhouettes, at least to me. You had said that team fortress two was one of your first experiences with, uh, with the idea of silhouettes. Now, when you, when you first started playing team fortress two, was that something that had really jumped out to you or was it something kind of in retrospect since silhouettes have become sort of, a bigger part of the discussion of design recently that you said like, Oh yeah, I can, I can see that in that game I used to enjoy. So let's see at the time I, I want to say I started playing TF2 during the beta and uh, which was before the orange box came out. And at the time they were talking a lot about how at the, it was the first time we'd played a class-based game that, that each of the classes had a, a distinct visual identity, right? So like Battlefield 2 had classes, but for all intents and purposes, it didn't matter if a guy was an engineer or a soldier or whatever, the medic, whatever the other classes were, when you were fighting them, you you fought the, you shot the guy in the head and he died. Um, with TF2, you needed to be able to tell, oh, I, hey, I'm fighting a soldier. My, if I'm a pyro, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach, it doesn't matter who you are. You're going to approach each fight differently based on the opponent you're facing. Um, so you need to be able to tell what your opponents are. It's, it's very much like like playing a fighting game in that regard. You know, you when you load up Mortal Kombat, you know that you're facing off against. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm completely blanking on a Mortal Kombat character right now, but you, you know what moveset you need. You know how they're going to attack, all that kind of stuff. And and with TF2, that was their challenge. They had to be able to convey that information very quickly. And the way they settled on it was by building a distinct. Uh, silhouette for each character and i think eventually they did a video about it uh, when i was there for a review event they we it was one of the things we had we had talked about at length um over lunch one day uh and it it kind of stuck with me 
And I think this is a really good place to start because, you know, while we talk about games like Pac-Man or Space War, I think silhouettes in a, in a modern context sort of take on a little bit of a, a different meaning. And I think Team Fortress 2 is, is sort of a, a good place to look for the, the beginnings of silhouettes in this modern context for like bold design in, in the 3D space. I think it might help for this discussion if we talk a little bit about, you know, what it is that we mean when we're talking about silhouettes. So when you think about silhouettes in games, Will, what, what comes to your mind? Oh, so, so, um, I mean, the problem when we're talking about silhouettes, well, the other thing, the other way we could put this is that we're talking about how readable is a character, right? When you see a character moving on a screen, when you see Mario moving on a screen, you know, oh, hey, that's Mario because, you know, he, he's got a very bright color scheme, but also his, his, the edges of his character, no matter what direction he's facing, are fairly distinct and unique, right? He's the only character in that world that's kind of that stubby height. He's got a hat on or or, or hair often. He's got a mustache. He's got a big round nose. And he's he's got kind of short legs and kind of short arms. And as a result, your brain doesn't have to see... Like, if you, if you, if you turn Mario uh, Odyssey into the world of Limbo where all you saw was black silhouettes of all the characters, you would still know, oh, hey, that's Mario in the middle of the screen because it, it's it's a very distinctive design. And that's that's really what we're talking about. The, the, you know, Valve's, Val, where Valve ended up with TF2, where Blizzard went with Overwatch, where they went with Left 4 Dead, all these other games, it's all that that edge of the character is the first thing that our brains read. And that's, that's uh, you know, getting that, making those distinct makes it easier for people to tell who's who. And Jared, when when you think about silhouettes and design, what what jumps to your mind? I know because you and you and I have um, sort of film backgrounds, and I I think silhouettes and film can sometimes mean a uh, a slightly different thing. But what does it mean for you in video games? When we first started talking about the possibility of this topic, it was something like I played a lot of Dota two, so like I this comes up a little bit on a show, but I have over two thousand hours in Dota two, and Nerd. I know. Um, but it's not just unique to that. It's you know League of Legends and most of, most MOBAs, especially uh, the popular ones. They have you know Dota two. I think has like 150 plus characters at this point. While a lot of them look kind of similar, uh, they pretty much all have their own unique design. Although they kind have have been straying from that a little bit over the years. Um, I did read a, like a blog post about cosmetics valve had this list of rules that you had to use for each cosmetic for all their characters so that they, their basic silhouette remains the same but you're making a unique look for each character um that used to be true up until a couple of years ago now they're getting i think uh they're loosening up on those rules a little bit but in any of those games it's usually a five on five game and each character has four to six different spells all doing a lot of things on screen at one time um it becomes very important to be able to find your character because, uh, you know, it's that overhead view and, and and be able to suss out what's happening in any situation. So um, I think those are really good examples because there are so many things going on in the screen at one time. Uh, but at the same time, you can see instances where it does get a little confusing. I think that's why in certain tournaments they, they require like cosmetics to be turned off and going back to the roots and that kind of thing. Now, in in other mediums like photography and film, uh, I think people will typically think of something more along the lines of a game like Limbo, which uh, which Will brought up. Which it, it, again, if you have, if you haven't played Limbo, is sort of like black and white, but the the term silhouette is usually used to refer to like lighting something very brightly from behind, so you just have essentially like 
uh, an outline of a person or an object. Um, it's almost like a shadow games, puppet with with limbo, right? It's almost like there's a shadow puppet that you just can't see the puppeteer the, is the way they're doing it. It seems is is the visual effect, I guess. Yeah, and I think that limbo is more sort of the the traditional definition of the word silhouette. Where I think a game like Team Fortress Two or a game like Overwatch or Dota or these other games, um, the term gets used. I don't want to say more loosely, but it, it's used in a different context. I think to um, to to talk more about the the general impression that a character or a location or a an object gives to the the player. And I I pulled this really good quote from a guy named Mike Corriero, uh, who wrote a article on um, designing. Uh, video games using silhouettes and the, the title of the article is the use of silhouettes and concept design um, but i think he had a pretty good summation of kind of what we're going for here which he said he said the purpose of finding a strong and interesting silhouette is so that it becomes easily recognizable from a distance to the person playing a video game or watching a movie for example and i think as we sort of move forward in this discussion i think that that's probably a really good definition for us to to carry forward because i think that that gets a little bit more towards what we're talking about when we're talking about games and, and helps kind of separate it from those, those other mediums. Um, are, are there things that we're excluding in this definition? Like when we talk about silhouettes, Will, are we, do we incorporate color and movement or are these things that are, that are left out of this definition in your mind? So, um, I mean, when I, when I mentioned this as a topic, suggested this as a topic, what I was thinking about really was, was character read like silhouette as a as the primary tool for making characters recognizable or objects you know whatever it doesn't matter in left left for dead um left for dead's a good example because they actually use there's no mini map in left for dead so you don't know where your teammates are if they if they leave the room that you're in you're out of line of sight but what they do is pop up just an outline with a little bit of a glow around the edge of the silhouette to to uh, to let you know, hey, this is where this is where your friend is. You need to get over there because if you're standing too far away from your friend and left for dead, well, everybody's gonna die horribly when the zombies come. So um, I, I think it's I think it's I think I mean I think it's fine to include color. I think it's fine to include movement, and animation, all of these things. I mean, color, strictly speaking, color is not part of the silhouette. But if you're talking about silhouettes as a character reading tool, I think it definitely applies. And and how about movement, Jared? Do you think movement fits in here, like the way a character moves? Yes, in certain situations, for sure. I mean, if using Overwatch, for example, obviously, um, McCree, he moves a lot different than D.Va, who's in that giant mech. But also, like, the first thing, I think it's probably more of a secondary thing, because when when we're talking about silhouettes, it's very much like the thing that appeals to our lizard brain first, because... In video games, especially with the graphics that we have now, there's a whole lot of information that you're taking in visually all at once. And in multiplayer games, when there's a lot of things happening, you need to be able to see what's happening very quickly and interpret that without having to think about it too much. Um, So I would say it might be second to the shape. It might be the movement of it. Because like, Will, like you were saying, um, you know, a bush in PUBG You'll stare at that bush for a good long time to make sure it's not a, a real person if it's far enough away. I'd even take a pot shot or two at it just to be safe. I mean, it's always <laughs> good to be safe. So um, I, I, I think movement could be, you know, it could be a, an important part of this discussion, especially when we're talking, you know, in the context of, of, of multiplayer games. Well, and at the same time, if the movement obscures the silhouette, makes the character less readable, then then it is it's a it's a detriment. If you're designing your game to be your characters to be easily read, then the movement is an important part of that. I think I think movement definitely should be included. 
Now, in in PUBG, which is a game, it sounds like will you you really enjoy the use of the way they implement silhouettes in that game. What is it about those silhouettes that that really like speaks to that game's gameplay? So, um, you know, the when when I'm explaining PUBG to people who don't play PUBG, I usually say something along the lines of the, the most terrifying moment I've ever had in a video game ever was the first time I saw another human being in PUBG the first time I played. Um, and, you know, the the silhouettes, both for the player characters and for the the, the obfuscated ones, like the bushes, um, the, you know, the tree trunks and stuff like that. You know, that that's one of those things. It could have been a complete, it could be a complete accident, right? It could have been a happy accident. It could be something that they ran through the LOD scripts and chunk the 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 bushes in there and all of a sudden they're like hey this one looks kind of like a person can we tweak it a little bit make it look a little bit more like a person <laughs> um but but you know kind of no matter how whether it was or not i i find that it dramatically ratchets up the tension right you're always looking you you after a thousand hours i know where most of the bushes are on the rangel map it turns out um but you don't always know what's visible from where you are if you're someplace you don't go often right so it's it's um you know th that whole game exists to build tension over a 30 or 45 minute period or or i guess a two minute period if you're not very good um and <laughs> and anything that they can do to ratchet up that tension more you know is 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 excellent it contributes i mean that like i haven't played a game that i got shaky at the end of in in a decade <laughs> And, you know, every time I'm in a solo game at the end, I still get shaky at the end of that game. So, it, it, you know, they're, they're doing something right, clearly. One of the top criticisms that I've heard about the, the desert map in PUBG is that you don't have a lot of, there's not as much shrubbery and trees and bushes and stuff like that. Are you finding that maybe that they kind of, they may have strayed from that de design philosophy between the two maps? Uh, well, they just last week, I think that in the patch, they added a ton more cover back in the spaces in between towns. The desert map, your your cover is mainly in terms of, of terrain. So there's a lot more kind of trenches and arroyos and, and, you know, peaks and valleys that you can use to peak up and drop back down, peak up and drop back down. Um, so it's much less about finding a bush to hide behind or a tree to hide behind and much more like just peeking your head up over a ridge, dropping it back down. But th then your silhouette comparisons are rocks, right? Instead of trees. And there are tons of rocks that are shaped exactly like a level two helmet, which is the most common helmet you'll see in the game. <laughs> and so you're always looking at the top of these ridges and you're like, Oh man, is that thing? Is that, that, that looks like a rock, but it could be a tan level two helmet. I, I can't tell. Can you, will you look at two thirty five and see if that's a rock or a helmet? <laughs> So it's it's the same problem, just executed a different way with the new map. Now with the with the bushes, does that almost feel like artificial in your mind, since it, it might be a uh, like a draw distance thing, or or does it does it come across as something that's definitely intentional? Or um, I mean, I guess without actually speaking to him, there might, there might be not a, no way to know if it is intentional. But is does does it? feel like artificial tension when it's an artifact of the the restrictions of the technology i'm reasonably certain that like it happens enough that i think it has to be intentional like the those knots in the trees don't get placed at head height by accident right um i i i want to believe that it's intentional if it's not it would be really sad uh, but I, I i don't i don't <laughs> i don't think it attracts from the from the tension either way i mean the tension remains so uh if if, if you if you can make people shake at the end of your 40 minute multiplayer game. I think you've done pretty well. So 
Now, Jared, what are there any games that stick out in your mind as uh, games that use the use strong silhouettes really well that that um, you'd like to bring up here? Valve, I think, was was on top of it, and they they brought that over to Dota Two, and uh, I think you know we kind of talked about Left 4 Dead as well. So Valve, you know, it's they don't really make too many games anymore these days. But uh, they probably had a, a very smart team thinking about this kind of thing and, and talking about the psychology of uh, visual feedback. Well, and, and if you think about it with Team Fortress and Team Fortress Classic, the things that came before TF2, like there's a direct there's a direct through line because those games just use the default Quake Guys model with a different color skin to represent different classes. So, you, you know, like... TF2 is demonstrably better in a large portion of it is that you can read the classes from any distance without having to see colors. And I guess continuing on the the Valve train, I think a game that used silhouettes really well was a game like Counter-Strike. Because where I think TF2 kind of gave you a little more time with your with you know line of sight to enemy uh, before you had to make any kinds of swift reactions. Uh, I think Counter-Strike is a game that relied very, very heavily on being able to identify friend from foe uh, very, very quickly. I mean, it had to be almost instantaneous. So I think that um, Counter-Strike as maybe like even an early example of what we're talking about was a had a great use of silhouettes where the counter-terrorists and the terrorists both had very different looking, different looking silhouettes so that when you when you had to pop off that shot in a fraction of a second, you knew exactly that you were, you know, exactly who you were shooting at. I, I think that there's a really strong through line from from Team Fortress One or Team Fortress Classic to Counter Strike to TF Two to Left for Dead to Dota Two. Because like if you look at a game like Dota Two, if they had a hundred different units and you had ten people on the map at any time and they were all using the same player model with different skins, it would be incomprehensible. Like nobody would be able to follow that game. Well, and they had, I mean, maybe unintentional things that they were trying to accomplish, if that makes any sense. Like, like those games uh, became very watchable as esports, and I think maybe a, a big part of that is because, like, what you're talking about, like they they found very striking silhouettes for these characters that made the game watchable. It made it comprehensible, not only for the people playing the game, but then subsequently for the the people that were, you know, enjoying it secondhand. I've tried to watch some Dota 2, and I, I kind of understand what's going on. I'm familiar with the jungling, but I, I th- there's there's mechanical hurdles there, too, that people have to get over. <laughs> I, uh, Don't do I, it, Will. I, it's I'm, not worth it. I can I'm going to be honest. It looks like nonsense to me. I've never really <laughs> been able to watch any of the uh, MOBAs be played professionally, but there, uh, there's no denying that there's a huge following of people that, that oh, keep yeah. up with those esports. I mean, there's million dollar tournaments that go on all the time for those for those games. So they're they're doing something right for a particular market of people and and I would guess a, a large part of that is is because of how recognizable characters are, you know, at an instant because of their silhouettes. Agreed. Well in, in Dota two specifically, there is a way I know during the international um they have you can so you can watch the game within the game's client. So your client is getting all the information, you're watching it, your computer's processing all the graphics and everything. Um, so it's a, it's a very one-to-one experience. And there's also spectator controls where you can select which announcer you want to listen to. And for the past few international tournaments, they've had a announcer for beginners or people who aren't familiar with Dota or MOBAs in general. And they would break the game down into 
ways that you know you might be able to understand in the context of maybe other video games. Uh, and one of the other things you can do within Dota from your client side is to turn off cosmetics and turn down particle effects and stuff like that. And when those people would stream the, their beginner streams for the international tournaments, they would turn that stuff off and it would make it a lot more digestible for people who weren't that familiar. More more games need to start doing stuff like that. Um, well, I guess let's let's jump on the negative train. Uh, <laughs> Will, are there any games that spring to your mind that maybe missed the mark on their implementation of silhouettes in their in their design, be it for characters or objects or locations or anything like that? This is another one of those examples. I'm, I'm going to keep talking about PUBG because it's what I'm playing the most these days. But I mean, if you look at some of the pickups, right? The pickups, if you, especially the way the pickups are distributed on the floor, the, the, the items, for example, a gas mask and a pair of boots looks like a level two vest. Two of, one of those things is incredibly desirable in the game and the other two are completely irrelevant. They're just cosmetics. So, you know, that, that's a, that's a, I don't know that that's intentional, but I think it's, um, you know, it, it's one of those, it's another one of those happy accidents, right? It's, it makes makes you spend an extra three milliseconds processing, hey, is this the thing I want or the thing that's going to make me look like a giant goofball with a Bane gas mask on my face? Um, other stuff that doesn't do well with silhouettes, I think that there's a lot of single player games that kind of don't necessarily have to worry about uh, character silhouettes because, you know, you're, you're kind of moving at your own pace. So something like Dishonored, a lot of the bad guys have exactly the same silhouette and there's no NPC type uh, characters in the game for the most part. So you're kind of traversing this environment and you have to get real close to tell whether these are good guys or bad guys in a lot of cases, which is, you know, like I said, probably intentional for the game design. It's, it's a kind of stealth creeping around stabbing people game. But, um, it, you know, it's it's uh, definitely not, I would not say that they're making a conscious effort to to communicate information that's also the only mean thing I'll ever say about Dishonored because it's one of my all-time favorites. Well, and that to me doesn't sound like even that mean of a thing to say because that could be intentional. I think there's an argument to be made that that strong silhouettes are not are maybe not necessary for every single kind of game. And I think what you what you brought up was the pace of that game. I think that might be an important factor in you know, why Why a silhouette may or may not, a strong silhouette may or may not be important to that game in particular. You know, when, when I was putting these notes together, I was trying to think like, you know, are there any combat games where silhouettes are not important? And the first thing that kind of jumped to my mind was uh, the Assassin's Creed multiplayer, which is a game where the goal is to look like and emulate the the movements of NPCs in the world to not give your location away. Now, however, the the execution of that multiplayer went down, which I'm going to suggest was maybe suboptimally. Um, I think that that game, because of the way that they had intended to pace that multiplayer, you know, called for subtlety. Called it didn't mm -hmm. necessarily call for like having your character really stand out in significant ways. So I think I think pacing it might be a big factor in the discussion of silhouettes. Because I think when we're talking about, you know, strong silhouettes, games like Overwatch, it's it's crucial to recognize what characters you're playing against and pick certain targets out of a out of a fray. But in games where you can kind of take your time, that that's a little less necessary, so maybe a little less important on the design side, and then you can focus more on the the 
the subtleties and the intricacies of, of the design of, of characters and objects in the world. Did either of you um, play the Splinter Cell multiplayer games? The ones that were the kind of asymmetrical, um, like the Mercs versus Spies games, where I think the Mercs were first person, the Spies were third person. They had dramatically different silhouettes and dramatically different play styles. I don't think so. Oh, I did man. not, but tell me about it. Sounds cool. Uh, yeah, so they were, um, yeah, Splinter Cell, you play a, a spy with who can dangle from walls and crawl through vents and all that stuff. And uh, you know, you're, as a spy, you were not lethal, right? You had you could knock somebody out for a few minutes, but your goal was always to get in someplace, grab, uh, grab a MacGuffin, and then get back out the other side without being detected. The Mercs, on the other hand, had all sorts of machine guns and booby traps and, and uh, they could see you using gadgets and stuff like that. And as a result for the Mercs, oh, and also team damage was on in all cases. So for the Mercs, like silhouettes were incredibly important because your, your Merc silhouette is a big chunky soldiery looking guy, you know, like your prototypical gears of war looking soldier guy. Whereas the spies were these kind of lithe, skinny, you know, sl- slender and fast, uh, guys in what looked like neoprene wetsuits crawling crawling through the world and it was a really well done it was kind of a pre- predecessor to the the some of the later assassin's creed multiplayer modes too in that you know there were there were teams with different goals that had different powers in the whole thing it was it was uh it, it it ended up working really well and a lot of the vision modes that the mercs had available to them were exclusively based on silhouettes so like they'd have an energy uh like a like an electrical use meter uh mode that would only show up like predator vision or something like that or or and you'd only see the silhouettes that's cool and when when was that one out do you remember um so the first time that shipped was with pandora tomorrow which was this first splinter cell which would have been like 2000 i, I want to say it was it may have even been xbox original xbox one one whatever you call the original xbox now um it may have been 360 i can't remember but it was like mid 2000s probably so 12 13 years ago yeah, it's interesting because I, I feel like a lot of these games that we're talking about as the prototypes for silhouettes were probably all around this time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's when people started paying. It's well, two things happened, right? The hardware had the polygon, the performance budget to run multiple character models in a game, which was relatively new in the mid to late two thousands. And at the same time, the fidelity on those could be high enough that you could actually get distinct character designs instead of just having like glorified stick figures like we would have had in the late nineties. You know what just came to my mind now that we're talking about polygon counts? I don't know why this sprang to my mind. It was uh, uh, GoldenEye. Oh, yeah. N64. Oh, man. They had just... so many different characters. That was, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you could and... play as Odd Job. Yeah, but that was, che- that, but that was cheater. cheating. You're, yeah. You're, yeah, if you're a cheater, you're not allowed to pick <laughs> you Odd can't Job. Kill Odd get Job. Get good. <laughs> <laughs> That's how pretty much every argument went at my buddy Cole's house. <laughs> yeah. He was the guy with N64. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, Jared, are there any games that jump out to you as being games that maybe failed on the the implementation of strong silhouettes? I started thinking about um, RTS games a lot when we were talking about this. And oh, one of my all-time favorite RTS that turns out, I think, go- going back kind of fails this test is Company of Heroes. Um, I really like that era. I liked, I liked the story in that game. It was just it was just an outstanding World War II game. Um, but all so many of those units look exactly the same where whether it's like your heavy machine gun guy your rifle infantry um your flamethrower guy i mean with the exception of his backpack those guys were really hard to tell apart and while there weren't you know hundreds of those units on screen like in starcraft or, or something like that 
um, it, it did get difficult at times to kind of pick which ones that you were looking at on the map. I can't believe I didn't think about RTSs. Um, I've been playing a lot of They Are Billions lately, which does a really good job. It's a it's a zombie survival RTS. So there's no there's no like human opponent that you play against. You're just playing against the the machine, and the machine is billions of zombies, and they just keep throwing them at you. the The human characters that you control have all have really good silhouettes and are really immediately distinguishable. But the zombies, and I I assume this is an intentional choice. Like there are fast zombies, there are slow zombies, there are strong zombies. And most of the of the normal non kind of boss zombies have exactly the same silhouette, very similar silhouettes. So you have to really look closely to see if you're approaching a fast zombie or slow zombie, uh, something that's going to explode and blow goo all over you or or whatever. So, um, and I think that's I think that's I think they do that intentionally. So I think it's a I don't know if I'd call it negative, but they definitely fail to communicate meaningful information, probably intentionally. And I, I, I kind of think, or I think we'll see as we're being critical of, of this design choice, is that sometimes when these could be better, it's the art trying to mimic real life. Like uh, Company of Heroes, they're just trying to look like regular World War II infantry units. Um, but, you know, from a gameplay perspective, things, you know, designs like, like Overwatch and Team Fortress, those are super useful because they are cartoony. Uh, they can take a lot more liberty in their art design and, and make that a lot more effective at uh you know what that's trying to do yeah i think i think that's a really great point jared the the idea that the pursuit of realism might sometimes supersede maybe the design requirements for a game and whether or not that's a you know a positive or a negative sort of i guess depends game to game but it, that certainly does seem like a, a consideration in a lot of the games where strong silhouettes are maybe not as uh emphasized i think of a game like call of duty or uh, battlefield like will mentioned earlier where you know character to character there's not really much to distinguish them you might be able to tell what kind of gun they're carrying and and may i mean maybe if you've got a real sharp eye you can tell if they're if they are a medic or if they're infantry or if they've got a rocket launcher or, or things like that but but these are examples of games that are pursuing this look of realism and and sometimes that's at the expense of, you know, other considerations. I mean, there's always a balance, right? It's always a thing exactly. that you have to you, you push pull against. It's and and in a game like Call of Duty, it really doesn't matter. Like the guy who's coming at you, if you don't if you don't pre fire when you're coming around the corner, he's going to kill you. So exactly, and I and I don't think that it. I don't think I. I said Call of Duty. I didn't mean it to sound like a negative because I think in Call of Duty, you're exactly right. That it, you know, if you're if you're staring at a guy who's kitted out to be stealthy, or you're staring at a guy who's kitted out with a heavy machine gun, it it almost doesn't matter. That's not the emphasis of the moment to moment gameplay in that game. Yeah. But when when you pitched this idea to talk about silhouettes, I immediately thought of a recent game called Lawbreakers, which was I, I think it was Cliff Blazinski's newest mm -hmm. venture. Um. It was it was originally pitched as sort of the it was going to be the the new hot class based shooter with like funky gravity mechanics and and it, I mean it all sounded really cool and and uh, they had like really cool trailers out for it until you saw the gameplay and there was nothing that that sort of separated it from a game like Call there was nothing that screamed class based to me from the design perspective of that mm. game 
And I know a lot of people have spent a lot of time sort of comparing and contrasting that game with Overwatch, but I think for good reason. The game like Overwatch, which... Didn't they sort of come out around the same time? Uh, Overwatch uh, came out a year before. Okay, they yeah. announced about, about the a... same time, as I recall. And I think that I think that Lawbreakers, at least from the way that I had heard it pitched, was trying to take a bite out of Overwatch's sandwich. Like they're they're trying to to jump onto the success of Overwatch with their class based gameplay. But I think in in failing to execute on what a class based game looks like, they 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 failed to sell that game. And and I think it's has been unfortunately sort of a, a financial and critical failure for them and i think a large part of that is because they the design of of the game the the silhouettes of the characters there's in that game it was very important to know hey am i am i looking at a melee character or am i looking at a long range character am i looking at someone who's fast or slow and and very little of that was communicated through the you know the the silhouette of the design yeah, I'm looking so. at some of the screenshots right now, and like their art style is pretty cool, kind of kind of sci-fi, esports. Like if esports was a real thing in real life or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, like gamer, the, like gamer the movie. Everyone knows that hit film, gamer. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they are like they do have this kind of like grounded in reality look to them, which makes them you know aside from the colors and maybe some cosmetic things, it's I could see how that's going to be very very hard to to suss out what you're looking at. And it's unfortunate because I mean I I love class based shooters. I mean, Jared, you and I have have sung the praises of Super Monday Night Combat oh on my this God. show many times. Oh, that's Will, a game with you... great silhouettes. Like, well, I played oh, Monday Will. Night Combat more than anything else, but yeah, Jared, Jared, we found one. <laughs> we found another one. <laughs> hey, so few people we talked to have, have ever played that game, or you know, they barely heard of it, much less played it. Oh, it was yeah. so good. Like, like, and they did a great job with silhouettes too. You could immediately tell who's a player character, who was a who was a. Um, a uh, 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 creep and yeah. yeah, it's super smart. So you know, it in Lawbreakers' case, it was unfortunate, but I think this is kind of getting to the heart of what makes silhouettes important to games, which is it needs to it needs to be it needs to relate to the point of your game, right? Like it, it needs to say something about the the core of your game. It's another way to communicate information, and it's tough because it's a much more subconscious way to communicate information. When you look at Diva or the Heavy in TF2, or uh, or you know um, Roadhog, like you know that that is a that you're looking at a large, physically imposing character that that says something completely different to me subconsciously than when I look at say a Genji or a Scout. You know, those are both slight, small fast get up you get get it get in get out hit and fade kind of characters and and like our brain prioritize right or wrong our brain prioritizes big as scary and dangerous and small as maybe less so now i guess if you charge a genji you find out something different but that's a that's a different experience different story now again we we've been talking a lot about uh games that revolve around combat can you guys think of any games that don't focus on combat, but where silhouette is important. How about Will, I guess I'll pitch it to you. Yeah, how about Tetris, right? Yeah. You can play, you could play, I guess when I first played Tetris, it was on a screen that had what, 8-bit green scale or something? I can't remember what the Game Boy had. But it was essentially, we were looking at just the edges of these blocks. And, you know, that game is, is it's one of the all-time great games. And and you, it doesn't need colors, but it's nice when it has them, I guess. 
Um, Luminez is the same kind of way. Like eventually you're just kind of reading the edges of the map of the of the game board and dropping your squares in where they need to be. Yeah, Tetris is a is a good example for this because especially when you get up to high level Tetris, when you watch people who really know what they're doing when they play Tetris, I can't imagine that they're able to keep their eyes on everything at once. So probably a lot of what they're doing is based on peripheral vision, mm-hmm. like being able, or at least, you know, sort of darting your eyes back and forth between the the play space and your upcoming block. Um, so being able to communicate, yeah, really quickly, this is what you got coming up. This is, you know, you got to find a space for it or plan a space for it is, um, is huge um, for a game like that. So Mirror's Edge is another one I kind of thought about, not necessarily with players, because there aren't that many players in, in Mirror's Edge that you encounter. I mean, I guess... Those are kind of the the bad parts of that game, but the way they use the the edges and the silhouettes to highlight paths for the player or potential paths for the player is really interesting. Like they just used um, like specular highlighting and some edge, a little bit of edge coloring, I guess, to say, hey, this this is this is this is a place you can go if you so desire, which was which was kind of unusual at the time. I guess really still is. Yeah, and that's a cool example too because. When we talk about silhouettes, I think the first thing that a lot of people think of is the silhouettes of characters. Um, but yeah, using silhouettes to define the play space as well, to define the world, is also a part of this discussion, and I think an important one. So that's a that's a cool point to bring up. Uh, the The game that I think of in in relation to this is Portal, hmm. um, and I'm thinking mostly of the design of GLaDOS. Now, oh, yeah. this is... I can see that. In, and the reason I, I bring up GLaDOS is that she is, for people who haven't played it, she's a, a robot. Um, she is the malicious robot that's running you through all of these test chambers and, and constantly trying to kill you through various means. Um, she's, also very, she's also very funny and, and very twisted. Um, you know, in the way that she like is constantly, I don't know, like sarcastic and, and goading you as the player. Um, but I think that that, that feeds into her design. Like even just the basic idea of her design is she has this really twisted brain and she's this sort of twisted machine that dangles upside down from the ceiling, very snake like. And she's, you know, she's ever present in this, in this, space like she can move through the walls so I, I think in you know in a game like this where combat is not necessarily the emphasis but the the silhouette can still sort of tell the story of what this character is like i think this is a that's kind of a cool example of the use of silhouettes well at the same time you they this even not necessarily with the silhouette but with the movement of the silhouette you convey a lot of information in the portal games especially with the other the other personality spheres right so when you see the psychotic personality sphere that's kind of constantly twitching and looking left and right and kind of all over the place in Portal 2, like like it's the same design as all the other personality spheres. But if you're even if you're looking at it from far away, you can kind of tell, oh yeah, that's that's that one. I don't want to get near that guy. Well, as as we're talking about silhouettes, are are there any potential downsides to using strong silhouettes that you guys could think of? And again, Will, I guess I'll I'll throw it to you first. Is there a downside from constantly trying to go for you know very striking silhouettes in games it's just another tool right it's like anything if you overuse it or use it use it um i don't want to say incorrectly but but use it 
without intent, then then you can make mistakes, right? Um, my thought is just be deliberate. If you want to uh, communicate disinformation or be ambiguous with the players, then then keep that in mind and think about your silhouettes in the, in that context. The same way, if you do want to criti- communicate information, and think about a lot of this is is kind of subtext for the for the player, so it's something that they that won't be front of mind. Something that's conveyed with the with the silhouettes, uh, you know, like the player size or the character size or or um, things like the level of detail shrubs that look like people in PUBG. And when you when you say that, when you say it's just another tool. Uh, it made me think of a quote from a, a podcast I was listening to recently, All Things Photography, which is actually mm-hmm. a, a podcast that my father does about photography. Oh, cool. He was interviewing a man named Peter Ensenberger, who's the uh, photo editor for uh, Arizona Highways Magazine, or I guess past photo editor for it. Uh, and they were talking about the um, the rule of of thirds and composition. And one of the things that he said in that interview is he said, allowing the rules to dictate your compositions the same way every time will make your photographs predictable and formulaic, a terrible fate for any artist. And it, I instantly thought about this, you know, this upcoming episode when I heard that. I was like, yeah, if you adhere to common design philosophies just because, just because they're design philosophies, you can kind of run into this issue where your game can fail to stand out. Um, I think of a game like Orcs Must Die, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this one. Came out five or six years ago, something like that. Probably longer. Now that when it, as I'm getting older, I'm finding things are coming out a lot longer ago than I <laughs> initially think they do. It only gets worse. It's okay. Uh, further the further down you get, the worse it gets. So um, yeah, I just remember a few years ago when Doom came out, not the 2016 one, but the 1994 <laughs> one. So and. The reason I bring up Orcs Must Die is because it was, I mean, a very a very fun game. I had, I had a, a great time playing the game, but its design philosophy, it was built around, you know, sort of the the standard fantasy video game art style, like World of Warcraft or, you know, sort of take your pick of any of the, the sort of cartoony medieval art style games that are out there. And... While the gameplay was really fun, the the look of the game was nothing to write home about because orcs looked like orcs, kobolds looked like kobolds. They, there was nothing to really distinguish them from, you know, what you had seen over and over again in other games with similar design philosophies. So that that's I think if you sort of stick to these these commonalities, you can kind of blend in. Uh, Jared, is is there anything that you can think of where like having silhouettes be a part of your game can cause issues like will was saying doing it without doing anything without purpose i think can can lead to a lot of unexpected results that often probably impede gameplay than than do anything to to help it but now i can't really think of like a, a very specific example there it completely got in the way of the game um if it does i think it's just one of those it's probably a game where there are more than just one thing that's not clicking and you're not sure why it, it, it could be a part of, you know, a lot of things, you know, sometimes something can just feel off and that might be a contributor to that, that type of experience. Or, or it might just make it like, it may be obfuscated. It might, it might feel confusing for the player, right? Like if you're, if you're, if you're not able to tell, <clears throat> like if you're playing left for dead and the boomers and the chargers and the tanks all look exactly the same, 
you're going to be really confused that one zombie can throw you across the map, one zombie can blow slime all over you, and the other one can smash you up against the wall and beat you to death. Yeah, exactly. And if the, if that's not your point, that's that's clearly, I guess, a failure on the design side, where you know if if your game does call for that to be you know obscured then you shouldn't be afraid to to let those features be obscured but yeah i I hear exactly what you're saying jared um how about you what can the industry do to improve in relation to silhouettes and video games well certainly not everything has been discovered but the book i think has been pretty pretty clearly written um for multiplayer games i think that a lot of games are doing that that whole thing very well um Overwatch may be one of the, the best modern examples of that, but I'd like to see it used in, in more interesting ways in, in single player games and, and use it as a, as a story mechanic. Um, something that comes to mind is a, you know the puzzle game Antichamber, where that, that game uh, does a lot of interesting things with silhouettes and perspectives. Bioshock did some really cool things with shadows where you would walk around a corner expecting one thing and get something entirely different. So I think there's a lot of creative ways still to be explored to tell stories using silhouettes. And, you know, I'd like to see someone take, take that on in a, in a more conscious way other than, you know, a Bioshock, you know, had a couple of jump scares out of it. I think there, there's some maybe cool, cool things to do with that. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but I think pace is a big, it plays a big part in this idea of, of silhouettes. You know, if, if your, if your pace is, requires twitch accuracy and recognition and those kinds of things then i think something like bold features or or at least accentuating the important elements of that game is important where if your pace is a little slower then you can have a little bit more subtle design a little more intricacies in your your character i think about a game like uh no i can't which hitman was it was it contracts where you're trying to you're assassin. You're supposed to assassinate a man who's sitting in a room full of doubles, and then they're you're getting information over the headset about traits of his that he's like a smoker and he's left-handed and. Oh, I don't. I don't know. I don't remember that. that. Was, it it was the one. Though. It was the one before the last year one. It was Blood Money or something. Is that it? I, I played that one. Money. I didn't play all of them. Um, the, yeah, that was exceptional. The, that was an exceptional. It was such a well-executed idea and so well done, and and yeah, it totally applies here. Yeah, and and maybe not that might not specifically be an example of uh you know silhouettes, but I think that's that's a good example of of where you know once the pace slows down, you can you can emphasize those other things really well for creative purposes. So that was that was my idea. I having gone last, I I I'll just sort of defer to the things that you guys said. And <laughs> I, think, I think the moral of the story is. Let's talk to Brendan Green. See, see what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. what, what, are yeah. you, what are you doing over there, Brendan? <laughs> Figure this one out. Let's get to the bottom of this. Um, the the the. Have you guys played Spy Party? It's kind of a similar situation to that Hitman level, but it's a multiplayer game. No, I don't think. And I also think you're not the first person to ask us that. But no, I, I have not played it. I think you can buy it early access still. You may only be selling it at con still, but it's it is um, the art style for that has evolved over the years. It started out as kind of I don't want to say programmer art because that's not that's, that's not accurate, but it was much more rudimentary and then as it got closer to release they kept cranking up the quality level as they went um and and how that how the changing art changed the way you play that game has been very interesting to watch over the last couple of years yeah that's cool to check it out yeah getting to see it sort of evolve over time that sounds neat all right well if that's going to do it for our discussion on silhouettes before we move on to our listener feedback we got to say goodbye to will 
Will's got to get out of here. He's been very gracious with his time, and we uh, really appreciate him joining us on this uh, this weekday evening. So, Will, thank you very much for being here, man. Well, thank you all for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, it, it's it's fun to dive deep into something that you don't often think about, um, and and it's been really informative to kind of go back through my gameplay history and think about all the places this pops up. You know, all the way back to Tetris. So, uh, th- thanks for thanks for getting me to do the the thought exercise. Now, where can people keep up with your work? Where can they find the Foo Show? Lay all the details on them. Um, so the Foo Show's on Steam. We have new episode dropping as soon as it's done. It should be in the next few days if everything goes well, probably before the episode's up. But that'll be uh, an episode where we talk to a guy who makes nanomachines out of DNA. And we do a whole Powers of Ten thing where we start in his lab and we shrink down into a piece of equipment until we, we're finally standing between the lipid layers of an E. coli cell. It's very, very cool and a completely different way to look at micro, uh, 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 sorry, uh, molecular pharmacology is what he does. Um, if you want to just keep up with the day-to-day, I'm on Twitter at Will Smith, two L's, um, two I's, a T, an H, an S, and a W. And, <laughs> Put that together uh, how you will. Yeah, just assemble it however you want. You'll find somebody. And uh, I stream PUBG pretty much every night at uh, twitch.tv slash not that Will Smith. Uh, no spaces or dashes or anything like that in there. So and we made uh, it through a full episode without uh, bringing up that you're not that Will Smith. I, I, you know, this is well, we maybe... did until just now, until just now, Jared, and you ruined <laughs> well, it. Well, I, I, I let him do it. I let him do it first. <laughs> okay. Look, you were, uh, you were maybe the first podcast I've ever done that didn't lead with a, hey, what's it like to be named Will Smith? <laughs> so, uh, so thank you guys so much for that and thanks for having me this was a uh, blast of course thank you and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening Will have a good one guys take care and with that we will move on to our listener feedback if you have any questions or comments about silhouettes or any of our previous topics please send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on twitter also if you have ideas for future topics you'd like us to talk about send those along as well Jared what do we got today our first piece of feedback comes from a long time. He usually calls and leaves us some voicemail. Mark Bennett. This time he decided to write us. I think I he, know Mark. I think I know Mark. He, he, you might. He wrote us on Facebook. He's talking about our episode with Drew and, and flight and video games. He says, uh, Mark says, I love flying in video games. One of my jobs at Midway Manufacturing back in the day, that day being 1984, was testing a nascent coin-op game with true 3D rendering of flight. I remember, indeed, finding a bug, but I mostly remember the fun of flying. I designed a cabinet for that game that was not only going to be a bit more immersive, but it was going to cost less than the Pac-Man cabinet, which Midway had made. I think it was about 90000 of. Uh, that's, that is incredibly awesome information. I had no idea that your dad was involved in that. Yep, yeah, as a, uh, oh, what's it called, like, uh, like, Product design, but not product design. I should know this. He's my own father. God damn it. <laughs> we'll to get him on this on this show sometime, maybe. Well, he'll probably call in and, and give me shit for, for not knowing the exact uh, job description that he held. But yeah, he's also a big, big flying, big flying fan like you, Jared. He, he was working on getting his, his pilot's license for a while. I guess I should check in and see where he's at with that if he's, if he's kept up with that at all. Um, someone else wrote us. It was uh, at Megasoum on Twitter. Uh, they said, uh, FYI, VATSIM is great, but still somewhat relaxed. And uh, for context, VATSIM was the simulator for air traffic control people who wanted to you know, hop on and interact with other people practicing ground control and moving around the airport. Uh, they go on to say, if you want the real thing, look up Pilot's Edge. It's limited to Southwest U.S. airports. 
Most controllers are real-life controllers or people actually learning to do the job. They 100% expect you to know how to deal with ATC. Uh, that sounds awesome and also terrifying because I am so underexperienced in this, but uh, I will keep that in mind as you know I progress my my pilot's license training. Um, I, you know, like Drew was saying from his experience, that's been one of the more difficult things to pick up. So um, I will have to use that tool. It sounds like a great great way to practice without pissing people off in, in real life. Yeah, thank you for the uh, recommendation, Megasum. It's something I will never touch. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I don't even fly and it's it sounds it's it, a special it, it gives kind of me nerd. it gives me anxiety like i don't even yeah. fly and like the idea of trying to talk to someone in a professional manner in a pseudo video game space ugh, i'm already like sweating profusely <laughs> well better <laughs> to mess up in that than yeah. while you're sitting at the end of the runway this one's great yeah, oh yeah i'll let you read this one oh, okay so this one came from at andrew elmore on twitter and uh short and sweet said that is a very good name for a podcast Thank you, I wonder why you, why, why you included that one here. <laughs> <laughs> you, you actually came up with the name Game Breaking Feature, and uh, I, I was on board. I thought that was, a, that was a great name. You didn't really have too much back and forth. I think you had the, well, the I had idea to, for the podcast. I, and now for the life of me, I can't remember what my first pitch was that didn't go over very well. Hmm. And I, don't, I, I don't even remember turning anything down unless you pitched it to somebody else. No, I think <laughs> I had pitched Your first choice it. as a host. No, I had, I had pitched it to you, and... Yeah, I don't. I, I guess maybe I don't remember what your exact reaction was, but I think we were both maybe a little warmer on the game breaking feature, which is a play on the the term game breaking bug and the common sentiment in video games. You know, is it a is it a bug or a feature? And I just sort of combined those two elements to come up with our show name. So there you go. Thank you, good, Andrew, good for the uh, for the compliment. I appreciate it, and thank you, Mark Bennett, for writing in, and thank you, Megasum. That's it for feedback for this one. Cool. Again, you can always send us your emails at podcast at gbfeature.com and, and uh, compliment us on anything you'd like. Or, or don't compliment us. We take uh, constructive criticism as well. We, we like hearing it all. And uh, Jared, I think that's going to do it. That sounds good to me, man. I think, I think this was a, it was a great episode. Um, I know Will is, is gone now, but uh, it, was, it was really a pleasure to have him on. I've, I've been a big fan of his. So thank yeah. you again, Will. Yeah, big, a big thank you to Will for, for helping us out with this one. As a reminder, we release new episodes every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, please head over to our iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. And I'm at Jared Bruner. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right, later, Jared. Have a good week, everybody. That's my new sign-off. Sounds good. I like it. It's very right. non-confrontational. <laughs> <laughs> no one could disagree with that.